You're about to hear a conversation with one of the most exciting talents on the Formula One grid. And if you want to know the truth about what it was really like driving in the recent Qatar Grand Prix, where a number of drivers ended up either in a hospital bed or on a drip after the demands of that Grand Prix, then download the High Performance app right now. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, the award-winning podcast that unlocks the minds of some of the most fascinating people on the planet. I'm Jake Humphrey, and alongside Professor Damien Hughes, we learn from the stories, successes and struggles of our guests, allowing us all to explore, be challenged and to grow. Here's what's coming up today. When you go into the car, that's my space. That's where I belong. So everything goes away at that point. We put our helmet on. And as soon as that helmet goes on and our earplugs go in, we're alone. I want to make this team work. I really do believe that. I enjoy working at this team. I enjoy the this family feel that this team has. And I feel like I'm at near my peak. I'm ready. I'm ready to win races, to fight for a championship. If that call came through, so confident in where I am right now compared to where I was back then, that I know I could join any team and I know I would do a good job. So today we welcome one of the nicest guys in sports, Alex Albon, to the podcast. He's one of the most talented Formula One drivers of the modern era, but he's also a man who knows the pain of top-level sports. Now, here's the really interesting thing. We've never recorded a podcast episode like this before because we actually recorded this in two separate days. Alex joined us at the Williams factory, and then a few days later after we'd sat and spoken for a couple of hours, we got a message to say he'd like to come back. He'd like to come back and share what's happened to him since the challenging parts of his career because he wanted this to be the ultimate conversation about what life is really like as a Formula One driver. Nothing was off the table in this conversation. He opened up about the personal issues that he had when he was younger. He gave us the truth for the first time about what it's actually like being the second driver at Red Bull and what was happening to him inside the helmet, inside the cockpit, when it started going wrong at Red Bull and he lost his job. But also, a couple of weeks later, we sat down again because Alex was also keen to show us that these difficult times, these challenging moments, these letdowns, these disappointments, they've created the driver we see today. So the first part was recorded just after the Qatar Grand Prix. The second part was recorded just after he came back from Brazil. Welcome along to the ultimate conversation about what it's really like to be a modern Formula One driver with Alex Albon. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Let's begin where we always do. What is high performance? For me, I would say high performance is performing under, surely under the pressure of, of what, I, what I perceive as, as racing, which is, is what is or I need to perform at. I find that, especially through your ups and downs, the downs are obviously clearly where it becomes most obvious where the greats become. I find that 
if you can perform when you're struggling and in these moments, pull yourself up. I actually did struggle with that in my career. When I had these downs, I would be down, down. And so, the, yeah, I think that's where I find the performance. Performance when, it's, when it gets tough. And were you always competitive? If we sort of rewind back to your childhood, where did this need to compete come from, do you think? I don't think I was the most competitive kid as when I was young. I wanted to win and I did win races as a kid. I was pretty okay growing up, going in karting and all this kind of thing. Um, but I, I also came from a fairly privileged background. I felt like racing for me at the time was a bit more of a, not a fun thing, but there was no pressure to it. I didn't need it. I could still, you know, still going to school and having um, seen my friends and all this kind of thing. But then at some point it turned and I think I had some family issues a few years on when I was about 14, 15. We like to call it, my mum went on a, on a holiday. But that changed me. That then became, firstly, the financial support was gone completely. But more than anything, it was a need to perform. It wasn't a want. It was almost a, uh, a survival feeling. This is what I have. This is the only thing I have. Um, I've got to make this work. So that's where the mindset changed. And that's where the hunger and the true competitor, right, competitiveness right. came, yeah. When did the seeds of becoming a racing driver get sown then? Very young. I was like a, an obsessed kid when I was growing up. One of my first words were Ferrari, which I would call Rari. It was Ferrari and then exhausts. I loved seeing like four tailpipes, <clears throat> which were smokes. So I used to always shout out smokes or Rari. I was a massive Michael Schumacher fan. I used to throw the biggest tantrums as a kid if Michael didn't win. My mom used to have a VHS of like 2001 Formula One highlights review. And I knew all the races that he won that, that year. So as soon as I would have a, an off or a bad day or whatever, that was straight in playing, playing a Michael win. So I always wanted to be a racing driver. And my dad used to race. I'll call him a semi-professional. <laughs> I, think, I think he would like that. But he was good. He was genuinely good at his job. And he, um, he raced in British touring cars. Not so much, not so much. So he, I got into racing as he stopped. So there was a bit of a, a crossover there. But he was the one who, he was my engineer, my mechanic, my driver coach. That was a very much a father-son thing. And I'm really interested in this period where your mindset shifted and you took this whole thing seriously. This yeah. was, it kind of really mattered. You know, obviously we're talking a bit in code and we won't go into the details. <laughs> your mum was jailed for a period. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. The support you had disappeared you, I guess, have to grow up at that moment. You do, yes. I also have four siblings. So in, in many sense, my, my stepdad, he looked after us and then they were going to school. Obviously, for them, it was a huge change as well. Private school, state school, going around. I know it sounds all very first world problem, but it meant a lot. The shift was huge. And so, yeah, there was a, a feeling of the unknown and a big hit in the face that you've got to sort yourself out and take this thing seriously. So it got pretty intense. And I have to say the first year as I started to adapt to this different, call it life, really, it didn't go that smoothly. You know, I was straight away kicked out of the Red Bull junior team at that time. And so this struggle became a bigger struggle. And then it was getting to the point where I thought things were starting to run out. The dream was becoming over. And um, you know, I'd love to have said straight away I found form and I was... I was off and that was what I needed to 
get me to click, but actually it wasn't. It was a struggle and it made it a bigger struggle. And mentally, it was much harder. In what way? I think in, in the very beginning, it was you know, just not having that support around me. That made a big difference. I actually think as well, at the very beginning, it was almost felt an added pressure because it felt like even if things didn't work out, you still had something to fall back on. It was important to me, but it wasn't the only thing. And in some ways, I think when everything happened, the pressure becomes, I've got to make this work. I've got to really get a grip of this. And um, the results I had aren't good enough. And these, this is what, what really matters. I was 14 at the time, 14, 15. That just adds more stress, more everything. And you do become lonely as well because at that time I didn't, I closed off my friend group. They were doing their thing. I left school at that time as well. You're by yourself and it's just not a good environment to be in. Taking you, a step you back. You must have found there. some kind of freedom in this period though because you worked hard with your dad helping at this point to find you some race seats. And yeah. fast forward of just a few short seasons and you're third place in the Formula 1 support series. So you managed yes. to find that freedom from somewhere. Didn't you? Something clicked at some point. Um, I started to relax a little bit. Right. I started to not put that intensity of pressure on myself. And it was a lot uh, about confidence. I think I lost a lot of general confidence when I had this issue. I went from casting to cars. I struggled in cars. Didn't have the feeling, didn't have the knowledge of single-seaters, as it were, to begin with. I struggled with general life confidence. Suddenly went from having a lot of friends to no friends. Started to be a lot more introverted. So everything started to fall away a little bit, become a little bit more fragmented in, in just who I was as a person. It just took a while to glue it back up. You said in your introduction, in your definition of high performance, was how you deal with those dark moments. I'm interested yeah. then in, for listeners to this, what yeah. were the top tips to get through that dip? For one, it was not to take everything so to heart. It, it was very tough. It is that feeling like everything's coming into you. And at that time, I, to be fair, I did have a genuine reason to feel that way. Yeah. I do think the circumstances I had were quite bad. Who were, you able, yes. who were you able to lean on? Who were you able to go to and say, this is how I'm feeling, this is my... <laughs> I say my family, but it wasn't perfect. I don't want to say that I transformed as a person. I still carry this very introvertedness that I, still, that I had from back then. Once I really truly believed I could get back to, to, firstly, I was looking to get back to just where I was from casting point of view. I just wanted to be that driver that I was back then. But then until that point, it was not that clear to me Formula One was this, was this obvious pathway that I could achieve. It was such a, I don't think I'm a normal driver in that sense where Formula One was this thing and that's all I thought about. That's all I wanted to be. Of course, I wanted to be a Formula One driver, but for me to believe it, after everything that I went through, I had to, to almost prove it to myself. I needed to see it. And I would say, only until I got to Formula 2, until I got the call that I was going to be in Formula 1, did I actually realize I'm in it. So let's go to that moment then. You finish the Formula 2 season. George wins the title. Yes. Lando's the runner-up. You're third, right? Yes. Yeah. They both get the nod pretty early on that a Formula 1 opportunity awaits yes. for them. You didn't get the nod early on. You were set to go into the Formula E electric racing series, right? Yeah. How did you cope with that? I was 
I knew I was, I was, I was racing these guys. I was at the time I was actually second fighting with George for the final race of the championship, but I had a disastrous last race, stalled twice. But we'll forget that bit. But these two were the young guns. These were the hot shots. George was a Mercedes junior driver f- since he was 14, 15 years old, and Lando was connected with McLaren for kind of the same amount of time. It didn't matter to me seeing these guys have their chances in Formula One. I thought, good, they deserve it. They are good enough. On my side, it was a little bit like, I want that chance. So Formula E was when I got approached. Formula E is the electric racing of Formula One. It was, it's the next best thing, yeah. career-wise, to do outside of Formula One. I got approached to do Formula E, and um, I thought, amazing, that's great. I actually called Helmut Marco, who's the boss of the Red Bull Junior program, before I signed the contract, just to say, just out of any chance, is there a seat going in F1 before I sign this Formula E contract? And he told me, um, no, seats are full. So, you know, I, I signed that contract maybe three, four months before the final race of the season in, in Formula 2. And then it came to the last race of the year and Helmut Marco got me back again. So the one who, the guy who, who told me um, there's no space. And I thought, oh, great, he's agreed to my terms <laughs> on my simulator contract. I don't know what it is. I think it's just something he does occasionally. We're speaking about this contract the whole time. This is too much. La, la, la. Okay. As I was walking out the door, he was like, by the way, um, what's your position in, with your contract, with your Formula E contract? Can you get out? And I did make sure, the one thing I did make sure in my Formula E contract was to have a clause in it that if I had a Formula 1 offer, I was good yeah. to go. And um, I said, well, yeah, that's the way it is. And he said, okay, let me get back to you. And then um, within 24 hours, it was almost pretty much all done. And I was a Formula 1 driver. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Excitement, fear, apprehension. What are you thinking? Totally honest, more fear than anything else. Maybe you see it with me. I was a very kind of not the most confident person going through. I needed this kind of feeling like I, I didn't feel like I was quite there yet and had these stumbles along the way. And so when this Formula One opportunity came about, I thought, oh, am I ready now? A lot of the drivers, for example, like George or Lando, they did a lot of testing in the old F1 cars, in previous F1 cars before they started. I was going to start my first year in Formula One with literally zero days. I was more anxious and felt like I've got to make the most of this situation. I haven't been given, been dealt the best cards for this opportunity, but it's Formula One, I've got to take it. But what so, yeah. was the fear? How, what were you fearful it, of? Formula One is so cutthroat, it's your only moment. You can't mess up. There's drivers who take a bit too long in the championship to get going. It was just can I get up to speed quick enough? I, d- I did have that self-belief that I would be quick enough, but it, did, I, did I have the time to get there? There was this huge build-up. I remember arriving to the first test. It was, as I said, Barcelona. Nervous, of course, but excited to, to drive this Formula 1 car. I come out the pit lane, I do three corners, and I spin, and I put it into the gravel trap. And I remember, I was like, oh, God, okay. I've spun before, no big deal. But then you come in, to the garage there's like a med- like a medical car to take you in and there's like 20 cameras just waiting for you and i was like wow this is f1 it sounds that you're aware of the demands that are being placed on you in this seat you the consequences of spinning are evident with all those 
Mm. Photographers waiting for you when you come back in. Yeah. But you're describing the moment you put the helmet on. Yeah. You're focused on your own abilities. Yes. So how do you quieten that voice that is nagging away with that inner doubt? It's strange, but I think racing cars are quite unique where we are our own person. We put our helmet on. And as soon as that helmet goes on and our earplugs go in, we're alone. It's quite an intimate sport. There's no feeling like anyone's watching you. At least I don't feel like anyone's watching me. I don't feel like my engineers, even though they're talking to me, they're not there with me. And maybe it is this feeling of being slightly introverted, but it's actually where I feel the most calm, the most focused. When you go into the car, that's my space. Yeah. That's where I belong. So everything goes away at that point. It went away and things went well and you represented yourself brilliantly and then you suddenly have another change come to your career. Yeah. You're no longer a Toro Rosso driver, you're one phone call from being a Red Bull driver. It's a very odd situation where I was getting started to get very comfortable at Toro Rosso. Started off well, had a good first test and then the first few races started to have some good races, out qualify my teammate a few times. The pressure, every race was becoming less and less. I knew after the first race, I knew I belonged. I knew I've got what it takes and I, and I do generally believe in myself. And then summer break comes around and then I get <laughs> the same guy, Helmut Marco, calls me back, back to his office, this time in Austria. That's a bit more serious. You had no idea why? No idea why. I thought it was to go through my residency because I, he was helping me move to Monaco. And it was the same conversation. So he spent the whole time talking to, to me about this one thing. <laughs> and then just as the meeting ends, he goes, oh, by the way, you're in the, the Red Bull seat. Yeah, I think uh, this is the number to speak to. This is going to be your engineer. Maybe give him a call and um, figure out. You can't go to the factory, right? Because it's shut down. So everything's yeah. legally or by rule, regulation, you're not allowed to speak to anyone during shutdown. Um, but you are going to be announced in <laughs> about two hours. Um, and that was it. And by the way, you know, obviously at that time, your teammates literally one of the best drivers in the world. So uh, good luck. And that was six months after my, my first time in a Formula One car. So it was, it was big. It was what big. What were the kind of emotions that you experienced in that conversation? Am I good enough? <laughs> Can I do this? What's it like to be Max's teammate? got two weeks now of nothing just thinking about this opportunity but I can't drive I can't get into my happy place I can't get my helmet on I've got to just prolong this anxiety out um, but of course I went in, into it with more confidence than I did the first time but it's these opportunities you just have to take them because Formula 1 the way it is it's so cutthroat but at the same time I thought to myself there are so many drivers who would kill for this opportunity there's so many drivers who wish they could have a spot at a top team. And within six months, you have got that already. You're not going to reject it. And I think in hindsight, it was most probably a bit too early. I definitely was not prepared enough for, for my first year in, in, in a top way? team. What do you mean by that? There's so much that goes on in Formula One. People always think it's the driving side of things. you just got to perform in the car when it matters and all these kind of things. But truthfully, for me especially, the biggest thing to get used to was everything around of it. Being Once you're in that top team, the spotlight gets put on you far more than what it was like at Toro Rosso. In the first race that I went to back, it was in Belgium. 
the attention around this whole swap, seat swap was massive. Every mistake, every thing you do gets criticized. It's quite a hot seat, I, the seat that I was in. It's been moved around a fair bit. I struggled with the, the media attention to begin with. I also didn't have a manager. I didn't have anyone around me. So in terms of a personal support, I had my family but I was going about it alone, you know. I'd go to the racetracks by myself and have my, I had my trainer, to be fair, but it was just us two going around. But there's also this just general knowledge about racing. But in Formula One, firstly, the engineering level is, is far advanced to anything that happened in Formula Two, but also when I'm struggling with the car, what do I need to do? Do I need to do some settings on my steering wheel? Will that help? There's literally 30 or 40 different things you can do to solve one problem. And I had no knowledge, really. I didn't have the experience. I never went through these problems before. I was underprepared, really. I just didn't have that racing experience, but life experience too. And how did you walk in there and try and bring the team around you? What did you say to your engineers, your side of the garage, to give them the confidence that this new guy that's been pitched into a team halfway through a season is going to do what Pierre Gasly, who was booted out of the team <laughs> this season, wasn't able to do, who's also a great driver, by the way. It's... He is, yes. I tried to do most of my talking on the track, really, which I don't think was, again, the greatest thing. At the time, I was 23. Yeah. So I was still quite awkward and I didn't probably understand how to build a relationship that well, especially with 100 people, you know, well, really, realistically, 1,000 people at a factory, but 100 people at the racetrack. So I just came in quite quiet, did my race, had a great race, but that's it. There was there wasn't much deeper than that. And how soon did you begin to think I'm maybe having to I'm struggling a little bit, I need to do something more? Did you never have a thought in that second half of that it season? It was so the year after especially was was the, the troubled year. That's when I really started to struggle at, at, at Red Bull. What changed it, then? Because you think you've done the half season great. Yeah, it now was you, great. It was in. good for a first year. Still was behind a little bit with Max, but had some really good showings. Um, some qualifiers went really well and some races did too. Um, the year after, the car changed quite a lot. It became much more tricky to drive. And I think that's especially where experience helps to get you out of these problems. I didn't really know how, what direction the car needs to go in. I didn't know how to drive around the problems as well, which is a big issue. Um, and I had a driver who could drive pretty much anything. It was didn't really affect him too much. So what I ended up realizing in hindsight, what I ended up going down was this feeling of overanalyzing, being overcritical, kind of going a little bit more down that road. So I spent so much energy in trying to find the solution, trying to find the problem, when really I believe I should have took a step back a bit, trusted myself a bit more, you know, not go through the data so much. I was looking at the data non-stop, having meetings non-stop, coming back to Milton Keynes at the factory, doing all of that kind of stuff, doing extra sim days, trying to find solutions for the car and all this kind of thing. And forcing it almost. Forcing it, exactly. And being over-analytical. So sometimes in that sense, it just doesn't work out. And that's the part where now I've come back from that a little bit and be a bit more relaxed. And how much of it was the fact you were up against Max? Look, so many people have uh, talked about the Red Bull second seat. You, know, you yeah. can give us the definitive answer of what it is like to be Max Verstappen's teammate. How do you describe it? A lot of people say that car is built around him. He's the, like the Michael Schumacher <laughs> of Ferrari. He's created this team around him. But truthfully, 
the car is what it is. He is very quick. So what ends up happening is he has quite a unique driving style, actually. It's not that easy to get along with. My driving style is a bit more on the smooth side. Um, but I like a car that has a good front end, so quite sharp, quite direct. Max does too, but his level of sharp and direct is it's a whole different level. It, it's eye-wateringly sharp. And to give people kind of a maybe an explanation of what that might feel like, I don't know if you guys play computer games at all, but if you bump up the sensitivity right. completely to the max and you move that mouse and it's just darting across the screen everywhere, that's how it feels. It becomes so sharp that it makes you a little bit tense. And so what ended up happening was, um, especially during my year, you start off being a little bit behind, but not by much. And then as the season goes on, and Max wants this front end in the car, he wants his car to be sharper. And as it goes sharper and sharper, he goes quicker and quicker. And for you to catch up, you have to start taking a little bit more risk. Um, you know, you might be a couple tenths behind one, one session just try a little bit more. Okay, I've gone off. I've had a crash. So then you've got to restart. Then you've lost a little bit of confidence. It takes a little bit more time. That gap's growing a little bit. And then the next time you try and go out and do another job, another spin or another whatever. And it just starts to snowball. And every time the car becomes sharper and sharper, you start to come more tense. And I think it's like any sport. If you start to, to not be in that flow state, and you're having to really think about it. And every time you go into a corner, you don't know how it's going to react. You don't have that. It just, it doesn't work. It never works. So were you enjoying being a Red Bull driver at this point? Not at all, no. I was struggling, I think. I was struggling with the attention around it. You know, of course, I deleted all my socials and, and I got away from the social media side of things. I think Formula One in itself is a whole different topic about the new generation and, and the, the new fan base that comes with it. It, it is very different but it was quite toxic truthfully and what do you mean by that your seats on under the spotlight the memes that come after you it's, it's a very gen z kind of style of mocking where you become almost a laughing joke and it's it's the easy go-to yeah. when whenever something happens it's always a quote of yours or a spin of yours or whatever it may be so you get rid of it as much as you can but thursdays at a track you can't you have media day and um I think most sports might be similar to ours, but there's only two drivers in a team. So you get assigned a lot of time with them. And so this, the questions you get, um, you're not performing, who could replace you or this driver's performing, what do you think about him or why are you struggling and all these kind of things. You, As much as you ignore it, you can't. You actually can't because on the Thursday, you figure out what everyone's been saying. I was going to ask as a self-confessed introvert, uh-huh. how, how do you handle this? I've... Not very well. <laughs> I would say t- to begin with, I blocked it out, took a stiff arm and, and tried to get rid of most of it as I could. But the reality of it was it doesn't really work because of these these moments where you, you can't ignore what's going on just because you're getting reminded of it. And it's not, it's just noise at the end of the day. And I think as I understood that it's just noise, I felt, and this sounds strange to say, the more I was self-aware about it, as long as I had my core roots and core feelings of you know, where I'm at and, and the progress I'm making and the areas I'm working on, it really stopped getting to me at a, some point. And I just started to, to just focus on myself. So, you know, psychologist, working with my trainer, 
working on certain areas of my of my racing, I was quite lucky where I had a year away from the sport. So as the, the negativity grew and grew, by the end of the year, I got to this point where I was flat. I was just destroyed mentally and didn't really have much motivation. It was realistically about six or seven months to process everything and to go back in and to fix it. What was the support network like for a 23-year-old suddenly under the glare of the spotlight, possibly having you know some mental health challenges and needing to yeah. speak to a psychologist, talk about it in the truth for what it was? What help was there from the team to, to understand your position? I think Red Bull especially, they have one extremely quick driver, but they're not that used to having young drivers in their team. So, you know, there was help and, and there was advice when needed, but it's not that obvious actually. And so I was with my trainer, we looked at sports psychologists just to see if I need to get that confidence back and that, that inner belief back. But it, it's very small. And I think people don't realize that Formula One, as much as it is a team sport, it's still very individual. You have the team and the team do care about you and they do want the best for you. But it's it's a strange sport where you have your little circle. It, it's a team within a team. It's really tough. It's really tough when you don't perform. What was the toughest moment when you look back on that season? It's obvious to say the moment when I got told I wasn't in the team anymore, but I kind of expected it. There was not one moment that stood out, but I think it was just the, it was a repetition of not clicking. And every time you're putting so much energy to try to find a solution, you're working hard to try and find a... This is the weekend. This is when it goes exactly, right. Yeah, Exactly. Or we did this on the simulator and that made me feel a bit more confident in the car. This is going to be the thing that gets me going. This is the thing that's going to work. You're out of the weekend. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't work. You know, so you, you end up just getting, I guess, in some ways defeated. You used a phrase, Alex, around that time when you said that I was destroyed. Yeah. Which is quite a dramatic phrase. And I'm interested <laughs> in what that looked like to you. But more interestingly, what was the steps that you took to rebuild yourself? So I realized there was two areas I needed to work on. It was first, I felt like I was too much of a yes man at Red Bull. So I was too eager to him impress and to please so I would always say yes to a lot of things and I realized my energy my mental energy was all was not I was far too drained even before I got into the car to begin with and the second thing was just pure performance where were my weaknesses to max what, what areas of the car what kind of why well, was he able to drive these style of cars why could he drive it like this way what areas in race management did I struggle with compared to him and so I created almost two areas, these two, two, two sides, the kind of the, the racing side and the, the non-racing side, let's say. But of course, it's, it's all in one. Sat down with my trainer, got myself a manager, got myself a social person, got myself a psychologist, get the network going. So I had a, a true team and I, I chose people that were maybe not the most experienced in their role, but would fight me to the death. And, and these are the same people that I have with me to this day, people who wanted an opportunity but cared for me and I, so I took a guy from Red Bull who I who always fought my corner no matter how how tough the situation was and he became my manager and then my my trainer who's obviously been with me from the very beginning so I created my network and then on the other side of things was the driving stuff which was actually very tough to do because I couldn't drive the car due to just not, not having a seat I did a lot of work at the simulator which 
made me understand things a little bit better. So how do I get myself to be the best driver I can be? That's going to put me in the best position. I do that. The one key moment really that we've skipped past is the moment that you get told you're leaving Red Bull. After all the things you've explained, and honestly, it's the first time I've ever really heard a Formula 1 driver say, like, this is how hard it can be in the, in the public glare when everyone mm. assumes your life's incredible because you're an F1 driver, actually, the sort of mental challenges that you're having to go through. Sure. Was there any part of you at that point that almost felt like a, a bit of a sense of relief that this, that this was over or not? No matter how painful it was to experience it, I still wanted it more than anything. And um, when I got told the news. How did they do it? Um, Christian called, just went to the office. Um, he told me. Um, I live, I, oh, I used to live about five minutes from the, from the factory, so it wasn't that bad. He told me, listen, I kind of knew it was coming. Saw it in the media a little bit beforehand. But um, oh. he said, you know, there, there, is this, there is this situation that's brewing. And I do genuinely believe this with Christian and Helmet. They really wanted it to work. Mm. The reason why it was told so late was because they gave me to the last race to try and show my worth. So for that, I genuinely do believe they wanted the best for me, but it just doesn't, it didn't work out. And, um, you know, obviously Sergio is going to, is going to take your place and, um, we'll keep you as a simulated driver if you, if you accept, um, and we'll, we'll try to find you a place, um, for the year after. I remember the walk back to my car. I remember obviously the, had a few moments by myself, um, afterwards. It was tough, but I thought I would have felt the relief, but all I wanted was to get back again. It's, I think it's that kind of psychotic kind of just need. And so people yeah, often say, you know, how, how long did it take you to, to get back into it? But within a week, I was, I was back in the simulator again, preparing their car for next year, the year that I wasn't going to be in. So yeah, it doesn't take too much. How's that then? Because you don't get into Formula One without an ego, right? You don't. It just isn't possible. Yes. What was your ego saying to you when you're basically making the car faster for the two race drivers, working hard on the sim, yeah. doing everything behind the scenes? It was the weirdest kind of <laughs> yin and yang, like everything pulling away from each other because I knew the best thing I can do for myself is to do the best job for the guys. The, I have to commit myself more than I ever have done before and I've got to raise my stock. I've, I've got to show not just the team, Red Bull, but I've got to show every other team on the paddock that I'm a valuable asset to this team. The best job I could do is to make this car as quick as it can go. And there were some issues on the, the gear I drove, this feeling that I had about the car. They were genuine. It wasn't me just saying it, but uh, we, we fixed a lot of these issues. And I remember in the first test, you know, when Checo and, and Max were driving the car, it was in Bahrain. And uh, Max, who obviously drove the year I drove with him's car, he said, well, you know, the car's transformed. It's, it's so stable now. And this is exactly what I needed in the car. You know, that's what I wanted in the car. And I thought to myself, oh, God, if only I was having to be selfless and it didn't really agree with me that much. I was doing my job, but it worked out and it was the right thing to do in the end. And how did you maintain your energy? Because you said in that, in the season before, yeah. it started to drain you where you had to go in and put a smile on your face and yeah. be enthusiastic, even though it was tough. It, it was so easy. When you want something, it, 
you don't have to work for it. The desire and the, the motivation to get back into F1 was so high. You know, of course, I didn't, in some ways, was it was pulling me this feeling of not being in a car, but helping other people. But the ambition to be back in a Formula One car was so high that my energy levels were, were sky high. Did you feel you hadn't actually had a fair crack? I felt like I had a fair crack. I just felt that already by that point in the year, I wish I knew the stuff I knew now already just six months ago, seven months ago. I wish I had that knowledge now. But so what did you yeah. do to get to, to generate interest in Formula One? I kind of did something. I think everyone would do it in the, in in the same same way as me. I basically got uh, statistics. I did my research on Pierre Gasly, who I replaced myself in the team, and then Sergio at the time, or currently in the seat. Most of it was relative to max speed, qualifying race. Maybe what, ten like a printed out piece of paper with like like an Excel sheet, and, exactly really? like an Excel sheet. The problem I had really was in, during the year that I struggled at, Max was qualifying third or fourth, sometimes even fifth, finishing races generally third or fourth. So then I would be maybe three, four tenths off him in some races. That would put me 12th, 11th, and they were disastrous. But the year after, the car was first or second almost every race. Was Lewis and Max were fighting for the title. And Checker was fourth or third or fifth. But the gap, between Max was actually, in most cases, bigger than it was when I was Max's teammate. He's a replacement to me, but people shouldn't discredit as much of a bad year as it was. I was still, in reflection, better than the teammate he has currently and the teammate he had before me. But I had this statistic and I didn't really know what to do with it and basically gave it to um, a couple of team bosses and started like that. And that was it, really. It was quite a, a nice transition. And I could tell straight away with Jost, he was very open, very warm. He believed in me. I'm convinced he must probably already had a statistic. Most teams do, actually. I think people don't, don't know this, but they have loads of analysis on all the drivers that we don't even realize ourselves. But just me you know, giving him that paper and showing him what I could do. And yeah, he gave me another opportunity. The trust is well placed. You know, we're sitting having this conversation and you're being spoken about now once again up and down the paddock, you know, all mm. kinds of big teams talking about Alex Albon. But the truth is, you look totally at home in this team. Yes. So are you now driving with the very thing that you didn't have at your disposal at Red Bull, which is the freedom? Yes. Do you now feel that, you know, with all due respect to Williams, if a Ferrari, Mercedes, Red Bull rang you again, you could go to a team fighting for wins tomorrow and drive with freedom? Yes, I do. I have the inner self-confidence. It's taken a long time to get there. I'm, I don't think I'm one of these drivers who've had it from the very beginning, but I do. I feel in some ways like I, I owe the team for what they've given me as a chance to get back into F1, but at the same time, I know I've given them back just as much as what they've given me. If that sounds a little bit arrogant to say. That's all. I want to make this team work. I, I really do believe that. I enjoy working at this team. I enjoy the this family feel that this team has. I enjoy seeing what James Vowles can do and, and how he's pulling this team. Weirdly, I'm I'm getting old. In in the world of Formula One, I'm 27, and I feel like I'm at near my peak. As in, you can have your peak for a long time, but but I'm 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 getting to a point where I feel like my experience and my speed is is in a 
good place and I'm ready. I'm ready to win races, to fight for a championship. There you go. That's a man talking who has been brutally taught the lessons of how cutthroat Formula One can be. Thanks for so much honesty and so much time. No problem. Hey guys, I'm really sorry for the brief interruption to today's episode. I just want to spend the next few moments telling you about some of the fantastic partners we work with here on High Performance who make these episodes possible. But make sure you stick around because in the second half of this conversation, we're going to hear what happened when Alex called us to arrange a second conversation. The next section of today's High Performance Podcast is brought to you by Indeed, the UK's number one job site, which makes finding better work easier and more effortless. And the reason why we wanted to work with Indeed is that Indeed and High Performance agree in a key area, hiring for skills, not academic credentials. And actually the High Performance Podcast team has really grown in the last six months. And every single one of the people that we've hired Their skills, their abilities, their approach to life, their attitude, their personality matter far, far more to us than their academic credentials. And actually, I can look at my own story. You know, for those of you that aren't aware, I completely flunked my A-levels. If you're listening outside of the UK, these are the exams that you take between the ages of like 16 and 18. And for those three subjects, after two years of effort, I got an E, which is the lowest pass you can get. An N, which stands for nearly an E, and a U, which stands for ungraded. And I don't blame my parents for this because they believed strongly in academia. But they said if I was going to amount to anything, then I had to get exam results. You know, the belief was without good exam results, I wasn't able to get a job. And I think, you know, my parents grew up in a period where getting a job for life was the most important thing. But the truth is that since I failed those A-levels, I've not been asked once in any job What did I get for my A-levels? And what changed it for me was that just a couple of days after I'd failed and I was feeling really down, um, a friend came to visit my mum and dad and she gave me a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And it basically taught me to look beyond myself, really, to look beyond those exam results, to realise that I was far more than something written down on a piece of paper. And I took that ethos into going and meeting people. And I went and met a local TV channel. And I actually said to them, look, I know I've failed my A-levels, but I don't think it matters because I can offer you far more than someone who's just done well at their exams. And their eyes lit up. And it was the first time I realised that people in the workplace, they want to hear these messages. And my advice there is, even if you're not doing the job that you think you're going to do for life, lean into the elements of that job that you love. Focus on the skills that you really enjoy, because I tell you, in your future, it's those skills and being world class at those seemingly simple things that's going to make a difference. And that's really the message of this short little clip, really, in association with Indeed, is that skills really matter. It doesn't matter that I failed my A-levels because the skill that I learned in that moment was looking beyond those results and realising what else I could still offer. And I love the fact that indeed are pushing this message that actually your skills matter more than your qualifications. And we're going to continue to work with Indeed to bring all of you lovely listeners even more workforce guidance and inspiration in the next few weeks. So please make sure you keep an ear out for that. And in the meantime, think about the lifelong skills that you might have. And finally, let them be seen by employers simply by uploading your CV for free on indeed.co.uk and let better work find you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, 
there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, let's get back to it now. Alex Albon, the Williams Formula One driver on high performance. I think that conversation with Alex Albon is the most fascinating insight into the true challenges of being a Formula One driver. And Damien and myself both applaud him for talking to us with such honesty and openness. I think when you're competing at the very top level of sport, all too often you're worried about talking like that because of, I don't know, maybe like it shows a weakness or a vulnerability that people are often afraid to share. But I think actually it's a superpower. The truth is that Alex Albon has found another superpower by going through those challenging times. And that is why it gives me great pleasure to say that we're sitting down with Alex once again. New location. London this time. Before we go into where you're at now and what your future looks like, that first conversation was probably, what, 48 hours after the Qatar Grand Prix, which has been described as the hardest Grand Prix in many years physically on the drivers. Um, I I suppose really the, the way you felt that day, and you can probably explain it better to us than I can, is a really good indicator, though, into the demands on your life, on your physical abilities, on your mental abilities. That was a tough week for you when we last spoke. It is. I, I would say, most probably Formula One, it doesn't come across in, in watching it on TV, most probably how physical it can get sometimes. And we see it now a couple of weeks later. Yeah. Man, you look refreshed. You look about... As much as I can do. I'm still... We, I've just got back from Brazil. <laughs> so we've, we've, been on, we've been in the simulator the last two days. But... Unlike last time, I've had a night's sleep, not directly from the simulator to the to the podcast room. So uh, I feel better, yes. So if I said to you, like, where are you now? What, what would your answer be? I would say I'm happier than I've ever been. I feel like I'm driving the best I've driven, but also in the best mental headspace. I think them two together, they go hand in hand, obviously. So what's your definition of happiness, I'm at? I think it, it's being in control of everything going around you. I feel when I compare myself to where I was four or five years ago, I feel confident in myself. I'm able to focus on the right things, the things that matter to me. I'm able to, to take care and provide for the people around me as well. And at the same time, honestly, it, it sounds almost selfish in some ways, but I'm performing well. And it's a tricky one to say, but we are so dependent as much as we try not to be, a lot of our happiness comes from, from our performance. Yeah. And it's quite hard to get away from that, but that's the reality that, you know, obviously when things are going well on track and I feel like I'm in a good place, I'm driving well, there is inevitably this buzz and this confidence around what's going on in my life right now. So we've spoken to a number of guests that have learned not to tie their happiness to the outcome, yeah. but to the performance and the exactly. process. And so... Brazil. It, it's, that is truly it. 
And um, with my trainer as well, that's that's what we focus on as much as we can is how can you create a platform that helps you operate at your best and delivers that outcome. But to do that took a lot of time, actually. I feel like what I learned over the last four or five years was what created where I am now. And you can't really understand what that is until you go through all these hard times. So would you do me a favor and just break down either like a a week or a day or or a weekend just to explain to us the, the kinds of decisions you're making the kinds of people you've got around you and what that does for you. Because I think as great as it is to hear it from you, it's actually really valuable for yeah, people yeah, in sure. any walk of life. Of course. So I'll take you into a week of, I mean, of course, these these weeks are, are decided weeks before the actual weekend of a race. But most of it starts from, from the Sunday before. So for example, my simulator days are already will always be on a Monday or a Tuesday. I like it that way because you still have a good memory for the weekend itself. It's not too far behind that you're almost when you're at the track, you're still trying to remember what you did at the simulator. I also do it that way because it gives me enough time in between to to still train before a Friday, before we start our weekends, but also take my mind away from just a full week of driving and driving and driving. In them two sim days, I've basically eliminated as much as possible any interference that's not driving related so for example when you go to a team simulator day there will be requests for your presence in other things signing items or things afterwards marketing things in between on your lunch break or afterwards all them kind of things are really important to make sure they're eliminated and that's the kind of thing of being much more the not the bad guy but putting yourself as priority for all these kind of things the driving to the sim and everything that's obviously all taken care of I don't want to waste energy doing stay, I stay in hotels right by the sim right by the factory just to make sure that I'm I'm more fresh and more prepared each day they matter to me the Wednesdays and Thursdays they tend to be travel days so how long will you spend in the sim? we start at 9 um, so I'm there for 8.30 and that's a lot of it it's just down to we'll have a chat beforehand do meetings what do we want to improve from last Last race, are there any things that we feel like we need to try for next year as well? Is it, is it whatever it may be? We'll all have goals and areas that we feel like we need to think about for the weekend, which we'll do in the simulator beforehand. And it will finish around 6 p.m., 7 p.m., depending. So it's a full day. We, we don't actually get out the car only for lunch is, is when we get out the car. So at least I do, so that we, uh, we're just in the zone, basically. And then after that, it, it's... Yeah, Wednesday, Thursday, mostly travel. That's all being taken care of. And at the same time, whilst this is happening, my structure for the weekend, so the Thursdays are media days, which, as I'm sure you know, Jake, they they can be quite intense. What have you learned to do to protect yourself on that day where that's kind of the least in-control day of your week, I would imagine? It is, but you still can control it, and that's really important. So who are these people that are interviewing me? Is it a waste of time? Are they actually important and is there a meaning behind it and when we spoke to you last time Alex you'd spoken around the relationship that you'd gone and recruited and developed with a psychologist yes to help you with the mental preparation as well so what you've described so far is a lot of the physical demands that are placed on you yes where do you make the time during this week to start getting yourself in the right headspace to be fair again it's more routine more than anything I don't feel like I you know do so nothing crazy different to what I did a few years ago. The, the one thing which I which stands out to me is giving myself me time. 
like I said, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, we're in demand. I think if anyone had has the chance to spend time with us over them four days in our hospitality, you'll be surprised how little time we actually get to ourselves. If we're not driving, we're in meetings. And if we're not in meetings, we're doing duties of, of something else. So I block out time. I, I actually give my team an hour to an hour and a half every day. And always at least 45 minutes before I drive, there's nothing they can touch in my schedule. So that's time where I'm a data-driven person. So that gives me time to to look on onboards, look at data. I like to do imagery. So I go through laps in my head, um, visualize what the laps that I want to be doing before I drive them. And that just gets me in my zone. So stuff like that. What have you learned about not allowing those intrusive thoughts in? Because you explained to us before, like at Red Bull, you overdrove to try and solve yes. the problems. We're talking after you've not even made the first corner of the previous race that you drove in. Yes. So how are you able to insulate yourself from that thought going, oh, I hope that doesn't happen again. Or, oh, you struggled here last year. Yeah, or... that's true. I see it as a challenge. So oh. I, I create a challenge upon myself. So I'll give you a good example in Brazil. Uh, just last week, we were nowhere. My qualifying lap, my first qualifying lap wasn't good. And um, my teammate was actually quicker than me. I see it weirdly as a challenge. And I go, instead of being negative about it, oh no, you know, this might be the first time where, or one of the few times where where I don't make it into Q2. Let's put it all and show myself everything I've done, how much better of a person I am, how much better of a driver I am. And I knew exactly going into that next lap with a new set of tires. I just have inner confidence. I just know that I'm so self-aware that thinking negatively is bad for me that I, I, I will make sure that I'm positive going into the next run. So for me, it was like, okay, I know, I've almost got this. I know I can overcome this. And I did a really good lap. And I, was, I think I was, for us, it was like P9 or P10 in, in qualifying for that qualifying lap. I like it. I see it as a challenge. Yeah. But, but, but also, but there's a nice your evidence challenge. as well. The fact the lap was good is your evidence that yes. this stuff isn't just yeah, no. words. It, it works. You know, my girlfriend is a golfer. I think golf is actually one of the worst sports for this because there's too much time to think. The ball doesn't move. You walk to the ball. You've done a bad shot. And you you can create a whole negative mindset the whole time you're walking to your next shot. Our brains work quickly and it works in racing too. So if we have a bad run, it, we can quickly go into a negative spiral whilst we're driving. I think because I was more towards the negative side when I was a driver four or five years ago, I am totally against being negative now. So as soon as I feel negative, it's such an easy switch from, for me. And I think, I hope other people may, might feel the same. It's so obvious that being negative is not good. It has no meaning. It has no help. It's not going to make you drive any better. It's only going to make things worse. So why think negative? It sounds so simple, but just because I'm so performance-driven, just to know that being negative is slower, it's easy for me to think positive, and the switch is, is not that difficult. And you're describing a process that sounds remarkably similar to an interview we did with a, a, a world championship boxer called Josh Warrington, mm. where he spoke about the loneliness of the dressing room before you go out to fight, Yes, where those automatic negative thoughts start to try and worm their way into your head. And one of the ideas he spoke about, Alex, was that he goes to the trouble of writing down okay. all the hurdles that is mm. that is passed over. Yeah. So if he feels that that's happening, he's got something written, okay. just to remind him. And I'm interested, wow. do you 
capture anything that helps you be able to go back and reconnect with all uh, the obstacles you've managed sure, to overcome? For example, like just as simple as that cue, that what qualifying lap that I did there, that's justification in itself. It's just easy. It's proof in the pudding. As the years have gone by, especially these last two years, I come up with scenarios in my head or think about scenarios in my head that I've, I've experienced in the last four or five years, four or five years ago. And inevitably, because it's racing, these last two years, I've experienced a similar position that I've been in to them four or five years ago. And as soon as I have this, almost, it's, it's almost a deja vu, but it's a real deja vu. I use it as an opportunity to show to myself that I've overcome that hurdle. And so I would say within 95, 99% of times I have. And that's just a confidence fulfilling exercise that I've now just gone, I'm in this position like I was then. Let's turn that and show that I can, I am a better person than I was back then. So how do you embed that's that? In your memory then, is it, do you write it it's, down it's, or it's you just done it? <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't need to write it down, it's stuck. It's almost like I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging myself from four or five years ago. And what about you're on the grid, lights out, it's just moments away. What's the work you're doing at that point? Is it, is that totally process driven at that point or is there still emotion moving um, around? It's still process driven in some ways. So another thing which I've done to improve my starts especially, just purely if I'm talking about starts and my procedure to start, we have basically built up a rig. We call it a start rig. We do about 300, 400 starts before we actually do the start itself. It's basically, it's almost a seat with the pedals. Everything's in the exact position that it is in the real car. The track. At the track. It's, in, it's actually in, normally in a driver's room, either mine or Logan's. And we'll just go through these starts and there's a target. We have to be within one millimeter on our clutch drops. Our clutches are on our hands, not on our feet unlike um, a road car and it's very difficult to be precise and it's the the way that you drop the clutch that creates the wheel spin or not and you're trying to be as on the limit as you can so routine it's, it's there's still a process to what we do I, I actually used to be more prepared so as I have gotten older I've realized I don't want to I don't want to write everything down I used to write everything down in a notebook what pit stops am I doing are there any moments in the race is there a corner that I want to try to save a little bit more? Or is there something that I learned in the race run? I've got rid of that, weirdly. And for me, it's just because I'm more confident in myself. I don't need the validation or, or the, the... I don't need as much structure. You've learned to trust yourself. I've, exactly, I've learned to trust myself. There's still things that I remember before the race. It's good to know what pit stop you, you've got to pit at. But still, I'm more confident. I think the more routine that you do, you're, you're, just, you're better prepared in a, in a different way. So what's the best bit of feedback that a member of your team has given you that's maybe given you pause for thought and then forced a yeah. change of direction? I would say, to be fair to you, this person isn't in my team. So I'm going off in a bit of a tangent, but the best piece of advice I got given, which was at the start of my Formula One career, was by a team boss called Franz Tost, who at the time the team was called Toro Rosso. And he was... He's an, he's an elder man, but he's gone through it. He's been at it from the ground up. One of them, get your hands dirty kind of guys. He told me the first time I met him was, he's German, so you can imagine it was Alex. Before, before I, I'm not going to do the accent, actually. I decided, <laughs> no, I decided mid, mid, mid quote. I'm Alex, gonna, you only got as far as Alex. <laughs> he was talking to me about Formula One. I was a rookie, obviously. 
And he said, Alex, if there's one thing you need to learn about Formula One is don't give a fuck. It doesn't sound that deep, but it's so true. And I didn't really understand it until I went through the tough times. And that's when, and that's where we talk about this kind of putting yourself first and being selfish. That's when it really started to, for me to understand what he meant. Because at the time it was, I don't really give a fuck, but actually I do. And I think I cared too much yeah. at the beginning and, it was it's strange for a team boss to say that because at the end of the day he wants you to care about the team he wants you to care about the image of the team but he wasn't like that he said you put yourself first and then that's it talk to us as well about the environment at williams because i think as much as all of those tough times you know personally and professionally have equipped you for being where you are if you're driving in a toxic environment it's actually very easy for those demons to to resurface it is and that that is part of it truthfully um i'm in a good part of my career i'm i'm performing well everything is feels easy and i know it feels easy a lot because of the, the results and, and the performance in the car are backing that needless to say it happens a lot in formula one i think a good example would be daniel ricardo when he was doing so well in in his career and then he had struggled had that dip in mclaren but you see him now, he's back up to, to, to that form. Can you relate to what he's been totally, through? Totally, and I think actually I saw it so much um, and we we did talk about it, this feeling like it's easy when things are going well, but once things go badly, it's it can come from nowhere. And part of me realizes, you know, next year, for some reason, it, it, it could go that way. I'm pretty sure it won't, but it could go that way. And so you've got to be prepared for it in some ways. And like you said, them demons can come back, but I think you're creating an environment and a structure in your in your processes that the chances of it happening are much lower, but also if it does happen, the security and, and the, again, I've gone through it. I know what it's like. I've, I'm best prepared for it now. Were you able to, and I'm not trying to betray any confidences here, but were you able to offer him to Daniel some some advice? Because you're kind of yeah, a couple of years yeah. further down the line, aren't yeah. you, in terms of these experiences? Um, I tried to. I didn't want to get too involved. so And I didn't know Daniel that one when we did talk about it. So I know him better now. But um, I just explained to him what I went through. Yeah. And I said, I wonder if it'd be interesting to know if you've gone through, if you're going through the same thing. In terms of advice, it was more that the break is going to help. And I felt that which he didn't do, but I didn't. And this helped me reset a little bit. But, you know, he only had six months out, whereas I had a, a year. I drove a different car. I drove into DTM, which is basically, a, it's like a, a modified Ferrari, a, G, a GT3 car. And when I took that year away, I got to a point where I was driving something that was so alien to me. But by the time I ended my Red Bull stint, because I didn't have the confidence, I was driving two tenths. I was afraid of every little slide or snap. I was overcorrecting or you could feel it in my hands. I could tell I was I was just too tense driving the car. I wasn't trusting it and I wasn't confident enough in that car. And when I went to that GT3 car, the cars are about 30 seconds a lap slower. They're terribly slow. But I was on the limit of a car and I wasn't I lost that tenseness. I felt, you know, I was sliding that thing around and it helped me reset a little bit. And so when I got back into the F1 car, which was a Williams this time, I lost a lot of the tenseness. I was yeah. back to feeling comfortable again with the car sliding around. I actually think that that benefited me. Yeah. That that was a that was a nice reset. I'm, I'm not sure what Daniel did in his six months, but um, but I did offer. I did say, listen, this has helped me. So, nice. so yeah. And can I ask you an intensely personal question? So you don't have to answer it. But 
I'm interested in how important faith is to you mm. because some of what you've described is what I understand maybe the Buddhist faith teaches about being able to let things go. Yeah. And I'm interested if if that's been a feature of your life. So I am Buddhist. My my mum is most probably a lot more, she practices Buddhism much more than I do. There are elements which I feel exactly that, where I've definitely used and, you know, I don't know if anyone's had spent time, I've been, I've had the privilege to be able to ask questions to monks who have such amazing way of words and being able to tell you know, how to deal with certain situations. So things like that have been very beneficial. And on the other side, I don't know if you have, for example, my mom, she's extremely superstitious and she's created a lot of superstition around her life. And naturally I became superstitious as well. As time has gone on, I've, I've basically been using much more of the kind of Buddhism language and being able to use words on and and be able to to reset and again as you said let things go and, and relax much better but at the same time get rid of superstition because i i really was almost some of them negative thoughts going in was a lot of it can be down to superstition you know if you in, in the same ways that even if you do the things that are not bad luck it doesn't mean they're good luck it just means they're not bad luck so that's just that's a doubt you're creating a doubt for no reason, basically. And so I started to immediately do things which I thought was unlucky to prove to myself that they weren't unlucky. Right. And that was just a way to get rid of all that kind of stuff and, and start afresh. And if you yeah. wouldn't mind telling us about some of those conversations with the monks, like, like what's was, one of the pieces of wisdom you remember? Most of it is down to life lessons, but life lessons that can apply to racing. I just remember, to be honest, it's more of a memory than anything else. I remember my family in Thailand, they... They're all Buddhist, and there was a there's a temple. It's about three hours drive from Bangkok, where they all live. I arrived to this place. It was a sanctuary, and basically told him what I'm telling you, the negative parts of it, the the moments around my Red Bull career, the feelings I had about negativity, and he would always have an answer for me in a completely different context, but it would be things. Oh gosh. It's really hard for me to remember, but he would he would use modern day learnings or he'd use old stories to always say, you're basically going through this example or this example. Um, a lot of them were older stories about, you know, there's, there was once a, a traveler who did this and so, and you're basically, you've got to be this kind of person. And, and yeah, I wish, I wish I could give you the exact example, but I just remember feeling this, this, this release of tension even in that moment, you know, okay, that makes so much more sense. Why am I so so worried? Why am I going towards this, you used to call it that chimpanzee brain, the jumping to that negative so quickly? I kind of remember coming back from that feeling much more reset. So here's the real test then, right, of how far you've come on this journey. Sure. Your phone goes this afternoon and it's Christian Horner saying, <laughs> Alex, come back to Red Bull, right? Yeah. Is the immediate thought, the chimp brain going, what? I can't go back there. My memories are so bad of that time in my life. Look how badly I drove. Look how much I struggled. Look what happened. Or do yeah. you go, I, I back myself to go anywhere now? I definitely back myself to go anywhere. I'm in a great position now at Williams. I'm very happy with where I am. I'm happy to see the progress of the team. But inevitably, the progress of the team is dependent on realistically what James Vowles is doing and also myself, my own inputs. But there's a time frame. I feel like right now I'm driving at the best possible 
period of my life. And I know there's still more to come. But at the same time, I want to be, I'm in a period where I feel like I want to win races. I want to be on podiums. And if that call came through, it's a possibility. And, and, and I don't, in, in some ways, for example, I'm so confident in where I am right now compared to where I was back then that I know I could join any team and I, I know I would do a good job. I have no doubt in that. So yes, I do think, I do think I'm ready for the challenge. But let's see. Let's see what's out there. Really interesting. And look, thank you so much for being so honest with us. No. My final question before we move on to the quick fast to wrap this up is this idea of like of dreaming, whether you allow yourself to do this. Like, do you, mm. obviously you'd love to be the world champion. Yes. Like, do you allow your, your brain to go there? And is it important for you to try and make some decisions at some point to make that a reality? Because, you know, let's be honest, yeah. Williams, amazing team, perfect, almost like, it's hard to explain this, it's almost like the perfect team for what you've been through. Yes to rebuild you yes. and you know they deserve so much credit for the culture they've built and the work they've done with you but there is also an argument here that the years run out pretty quick for a Formula 1 driver like you can't hang around if you want to be a world champion yes so how do you balance your loyalty to Williams your love and respect for what they've done with needing to basically get the shot at the world title that I'm sure you feel you deserve it's more short term I think than most really people think because it's so results-based. You have to focus in the present all the time, as much as you can. At least for, for me, I, I find that thinking about the past or the future too far ahead is the past is is good for the learnings. The future is, a, as you said, it's, it's a little bit dreaming and it's not realistically going to help you to dream too far ahead. That's more about structure and I leave that to my manager to to, to worry about. But for me, it's about being in the spotlight and focusing on on what I can do and I still am very strong in the way that anything I do now it's only going to better my chances in, into the future and if I can do these results and prove people prove the, to these top teams if it's not Williams these top teams um, the level that I'm at that's all done in in, in the now and um, the structure and the the teams if you do the job now they're going to they're going to come they're going to come knocking and that's why people say, you know, about Williams and, and where do you see yourself with Williams and into next year and the years after. The best job I can do is to do the best job I can do at Williams and, and to bring this team up to as high of a position as I can get them to with my development and my feedback. These teams, they want the same thing. You know, these, these top teams like Red Bull or Ferrari or, or Mercedes, they want them qualities. So it doesn't hinder how you go about it because at the end of the day, if you are that person, you can go wherever you want. Did you grow up dreaming of a certain team? There's always dreams, of course. If you just go on my Instagram, you'll see which team it was. I, I was a, a massive Ferrari fanboy. You know, Michael, when I was growing up, just anything. My mum would, if I didn't eat my vegetables, it wasn't anything other than, oh, Michael eats his vegetables. There I am, just <laughs> munching away straight away. And it was the same thing, for example, with, with anything. If I had to do my homework, <laughs> Michael does his homework. There I am, writing away. So... It was ingrained in me that I always wanted to be like Michael. Be like Mike. Be like Mike. Exactly. Different Mike. <laughs> I love the fact that as a kid, you you were able to dream. And yes. after all the sort of difficult things that Formula 1 threw your way in the early years, it's nice you can dream again. Thank you. Ready for some quick fire questions? Tell me. Yes. <laughs> okay. Quick fire questions. Your three non-negotiables. Non-negotiables. You and the people around you need to buy into. They have to be competitive. I'd say they also have to be passionate. But I feel like passion and Competition is the same thing. Mm -hmm. And for me, they have to be self-critical. 
If you could go back to one moment of your life, what would it be and why? Well, how we talked about, I, I want to go back to 20, 2019, 2020. I want to see what happens. If I was the person I am now then, I wouldn't want to go any further back than that because I feel like I've been on a journey and that's what's made me. But let's choose then. What do you think this new Alex would do in that car then? I honestly don't think the driving would change too much, but it's just, it's truly the, the mental approach and the, the experience. I think I would be much more of a leader, much more confident in myself, make decisions without doubting them. Next question, your biggest strength, your greatest weakness? My biggest strength, I would say, is, is that I'm self-aware. I, I stand by that. I think that um, I'm pretty honest on myself and I don't use it. For example, the to open up is a reflection of me being um, totally aware of who I am. The negative is, is also <laughs> the same thing. Um, I, I find that I'm still working on that. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I sometimes find being so unaware in some athletes, you can sense that they just, there is no switch. There is no, no self-knowledge of, I think Michael Jordan kind of, at least to me, looked like that, mm. where he just, it was, there was, he was the best and that's it. There, there was no doubt in it. Maybe there was, and he hid it. I'm, I'm intrigued by that mindset. And I yeah. look at that mindset and I think, wow, you can't just be that kind of mindset. That, that's a different, different kind. So what advice would you give to a teenage Alex just starting out on his journey? I never truly had the confidence that, I, that I'm at now. And I still feel like there's more, you know, I'm still not the most totally confident person there is. Um, but I'm, on, I'm in that journey. And you could imagine me as a kid, I was <laughs> the opposite side. I was quite low down. I think a lot of that comes from what, you know, me being introverted and, and all that kind of thing. It's really hard to give him advice because I know he didn't listen. You know, my dad, and my, my mom and my dad would always feed me with a lot of confidence and always tell me, you know, you don't know how good you are and, and all this kind of stuff. But I never really took it to heart. And I think I'd shake him. I'd be like, no, it's true. <laughs> so that, yeah. Nice. And look, the final question, having followed this roller coaster ride that your career has been, thank you so much for sharing so much with us. What, so, sitting here today, is your one golden rule that you'd love to share with people about living a high-performance life? My golden rule, I personally think it's the, it's the appetite and the hunger to constantly figure out purely what helps you perform at your best. I think a lot of what I've done is I'm still in that phase and I, I, I love trying to unlock and figure out what gets me to perform better. Is it the structure? Is it my mentality? And that's not really a true answer, but it's, it's that discovery phase. I find if you can if you're always wanting to learn more about yourself and figure out how, what makes you tick, you should be on a good path, I hope. Brilliant. Look, mate, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us on two separate occasions. And there'll be a lot of people listening to this that might be at a place in their life where they are where you were at Red Bull and things are not in flow and they're struggling yes. and it's difficult. And to hear you talk like this and to remind people that things pass and that life changes and nothing's fixed I think is a, is a powerful thing to share and it's rare from an athlete at the top of their game so thank no you problem. thank you guys thank you Damien Jake I actually really like the fact that you know Alex reached out to us after that first conversation at Williams and just said I told you about the tough times and it's really important to have that conversation 
but I'd now like to finish my story by telling you where I am today. And I, I think if we just spoke about the hard times with him without referencing the things we've just spoken about, it wouldn't be the truth. Like it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the helpful stuff that we can offer people because it's important to know that people like Alex go through really hard times, but look where they are now. So if someone's in a tough moment now, he's a, he's a great role model for where you can eventually get to. I think this podcast or the two podcasts, if you like, Jake, are almost emblematic of exactly what Alex has told us he does. So he's gone away, he's reflected and he's gone, how can we do this better? How can we come back and just actually take the positives from it as well? So I think it's a great example of somebody actually role modeling the mentality and the processes that he goes through in his day job in Formula One. Also, where he is today, you know, talking about the way he sets himself up for a race weekend with that 45 minutes before the race starts and making sure that he doesn't allow any negative thoughts in and even the energy he gets from wishing that he could have that Red Bull time back, knowing what he knows now. I think the truth is that the only way for him to be in this place is to have been in that place. And there's no way that he could know all these things. And yes, you get people like Max Verstappen who rolls into Formula 1, Lewis Hamilton, another example. They roll in and they just fly from minute one. He almost had to go through those dark times to be in the place he's at now. And and that's kind of the best thing that's ever happened to him, perhaps. Yeah, if we're willing to go to those uncomfortable moments, reflect on them, we will find learnings, stuff that we can take away and apply in our day-to-day life when things are hopefully a little bit more stable or successful. So I think what Alex has offered us is a fantastic blueprint for how we live our lives, take those tough moments, learn from them, reflect on them, and take the valuable stuff and apply it. Great. And another reminder that just because someone's an elite athlete or a top sports person or a business leader, it doesn't necessarily mean they have the tools to deal with the setbacks and the struggles. You know, he flew through a junior career and it was only going through the setbacks that gave him the, the tools, if you like, to deal with those. And it's a reminder that we will all face difficult times but you know lessons from the likes of Alex Albon about where he is now is invaluable stuff which again you know if people are listening to this and going I want to learn more around it go and listen to Bear Grylls talk about how the kid who never gets picked for the football team is learning life skills that are gonna allow him to be successful going on listen to Emily Maitlis talk about golden time before big interviews to just pause and collect her thoughts you know We're hearing so many examples from other guests around methodologies, regardless of their industry, that any of us can apply in our own lives. Great. I loved it, mate. Thank you, Bill. Me too. Thank you. So there you have it. Alex Albon recorded um, across two different days. And wasn't it an interesting chat? As always, huge thanks to you for listening to these podcasts. All I'd ask is that you do one thing. You send this to someone who you think could learn from realising that the setbacks and the difficult and dark moments in our life can lead us to the greatest moments. And can I just put on record a personal thanks to the team at Williams, to Alex's personal team and to Alex himself for opening up in this really important way. I think he's going to go on to do incredible things in his Formula One career. And I tell you what, I'm sure you agree with me when you've heard him talk in the way he has. You just want the very best for him. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. 